What up, what up, what up, everyone? Welcome to episode 81 of Combo's Court, and I am Combo. Big shouts to everyone listening to Combo's Court across the globe. The continued support, man, nothing short of amazing. Shouts to everyone that's been listening, downloading, sharing, rating, reviewing, subscribing. I see you, man. Combo Nation, we are out here. Today's show, former head coach of the Seton Hall Pirates and Manhattan Jaspers joins in. Bobby Gonzalez is here. We discuss Bobby's coaching career, if there should be concerns for Zion Williamson's weight, and Bobby also shares his thoughts on his transition to coaching in the Chinese Pro League. Great conversation with Bobby. Think you guys are going to really enjoy this one. You know you could follow me on Instagram at 12combo. That's O-N-E. T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O, intro music by Luca Beats, let's get into it. Luca on the track. Bobby Gonzalez, welcome to Combo's Court, man. How you feeling? Hey, I'm I'm good, Andrew. Thanks for having me. I seen you out in summer league. You're eating some good steak at the uh at the Puma Suite. <laughs> yeah, that was. I'll tell you, Andrew, that was fun. You know, catching up with Sham God, who you know, you know the story. I you know, I've known him since he was a kid. I helped recruit him to Providence College. We you know coached him. We went to the Elite Eight. I'm very proud of him now. He's got the you know Puma Ambassador deal, and then he's you know, uh, player development guy. And it was also great seeing another former point guard who you know very well, who I coached at Manhattan, Jason right. Wingate. And then with Rod, Strick- Rod Strickland coming in, Eric Harris, who I coached against from St. Raymond's, who played at Minnesota. I mean, it was like a, it was like the point guard, New York City point guard central. Right, right. You were, you were at Summer League mixing it up. What, what was your biggest takeaway from Summer League? Well, you know, I thought it was good, Andrew. You know, I, I was struck by... Again, you know, I know there's a lot of really, really young coaches out there, and I was kind of struck by the fact that not a lot of the important, rec- uh, you know, rookies uh, play in it that much anymore, and it's really more for, you know, the the, the, the late first-round guys, the second-round guys that are trying to make it. But I still found it interesting to see, you know, who what guys are sleeper guys, who, you know, in the draft that, you know, maybe was under the radar. And, again, I know they say when a guy doesn't play that well – you don't want to overreact to summer league when a guy plays really well. You also don't want to right. overreact. So once again, you hear this line from a lot of the NBA people. They say, well, it's only summer league. But I still think it's pretty cool just to see the talent up close. And, and, and you know, you get a little feel for guys to see what you think they're going to be like. Right. So um, let's say if you were a uh, head coach of an NBA team and Zion was um, one of your players, would you be concerned about his weight? You know, I, I would be a little bit, Andrew, just in that, you know, the fact that he's going to have to learn as a young guy that, that's been like on the banquet circuit, running around, shaking hands and doing endorsements and, you know, all the excitement. I mean, he certainly was deserving of all the accolades, but at the same time, he's probably going to have to learn and find out that, Hey, he's going to have to keep his wind up. He's going to have to make sure his weight is, is under control. He's going to have to eat right, get with trainers, work out. You know, again, he's, you know, he's a certain kind of a kid, a, a special kind of body type. We've seen very few guys that are like him that are as mobile as him, you know, uh, six, seven, six, eight, two eighty five. So, you know, he's a guy that they're going to have to really keep an eye on that. 
you know, that he, his body, you know, uh, can handle the, the rigors and the, and the pounding of 82 game NBA schedule. He's never done that before. Obviously, you know, he's a, he's such a man child that in college, you know, he could work out and be in a certain kind of shape and still, you know, pretty much almost dominate with his physical strength and athleticism in college, but the NBA is going to be a different deal. So, you know, I'd be a little concerned if I was GM David Griffin and, you know, the, the people that have to be around him that, he is a special kind of athlete. He's explosive. He's incredible. But at the same time, you know, they're going to have to really figure out again with his body type and his weight and his size, you know, what's going to be, you know, best for him. You know, you know, right. he's a rookie, he's young, he's got a long way to go, but I mean, Hey, listen, he's a great talent, but as Mike Krzyzewski came out and said, he probably shouldn't have played because he was really, you know, not in good shape, but some of that has to be on the kid and the young man. And he's going to have to figure out how to keep himself in shape even with all that. Stuff. Right, Bobby, isn't it sometimes, isn't it sometimes good to play your way into shape? Well, that's true yeah. too. You know, it's a little dangerous, you know, it's kind of like you got to work out enough that when you do get on the floor five on five, you know, you, you're, you're, you're not putting yourself at right. risk of, of, of injury. You know? At the same time, you know, you make a good point that sometimes the only way you can get in game shape is, you know, from playing in games. So there, there is sometimes only so much you can do through lifting and running and working out and being with trainers and you do need the games, you know, the exhibitions, the scrimmages. You know, again, I, I think this is going to be a big transition for him and a, and a big learning experience uh, because, you know, again, he's so young. He's only played one year of college. He right. did have the injury, the, you know, which wasn't a major, major injury. The, the, the cool thing was that he did come back really strong from that injury right off, you know, right after he got uh, came, you know, after he had the sneaker blowout. And then when he came back, he played fantastic in the ACC tournament. So there was no real ill effects. But now you're seeing a kid that, you know, again, he's he's going to be going through a whole new level now, play, you know, competing against men that are 25, 28. Uh, you coached at Manhattan College, Seton Hall, Providence, and we're going to get to all that. But before I, before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, how is that transition like to um, coaching in China? Because I know it's such a different dynamic. Well, it's been very interesting, Andrew. I appreciate you asking that. It, it You know, the, like I once heard, and, you know, this doesn't mean all college guys are this way, but, you know, I had to kind of grow up and learn a little bit about it too. And, they, and there was a, sta- a statement that someone said, you know, college guys sometimes can tend to talk down to the players. And in the NBA or the pro level, international level with grown men, you have to talk to the players. Right. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, everyone's, you know, just yelling at kids or, or being condescending, but it is an adjustment, you know, it, it is interesting to coach, you know, grown men and, 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 you know, it's, it's kind of a different dynamic. Like you say that, you know, you're dealing with guys that are trying to make a living at it now and, you know, they're older and, you know, you, you know, the one part that's interesting is, you know, you're not dealing with any academics or recruiting or NCA rules or, you know, or any of that kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it's almost like, you know, you can be friends with them. You're, you're kind of, you know, you have to talk to them as men and treat them as men. But on the other hand, you know, you still have to show them, you know, accountability. You have to have some discipline, of course. And then you got to hug them. You know, you got to show them love. Uh, it's it's different, you know, different kind of motivating uh, factors, you know, different psychology that goes into it. And um, but again, it, it was been a, a great learning experience for me the last two, three years where, you know, you're at the business level. What I did like about China was, you know, in the college level, you're working to try to help God make it to where they make money. What the interesting thing about being over at a place like China was. You're dealing with a lot of pro guys that that came from the NBA, you know, in China where they can get back to the NBA. So, you know, a different kind of hunger, but yet still a challenge, you know, and and, and that was pretty interesting. Slightly less stressful, would you say, than the college game? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you know, cer- certainly you're still right. trying to win and lose. You know, of course, you know, the, the, the finite thing of keeping score and trying to make the playoffs. And, you know, if you win, you go to the playoffs and you get bonus money. I mean, 
you know, you know, coaches get fired still on the record right. and, you know, there's still that kind of pressure, but, but, you know, a little different from the day, you know, the, not as much pressure on the daily grind, whereas a head coach, when you're running your own program, you're worrying about fans, the alumni, the media, the administration, speaking engagements, you know, you're, you're kind of like, you know, driving the van, taping ankles, you know, you're doing right. everything when you're a college coach. And when you become a pro coach, there's other factors, you know, you see agents that have to worry about the players. And then there's, you know, the assistant coaches are, you know, there's other, you know, team personnel that, you know, take on different things that you don't, you know, that you're not doing it. It's kind of like all basketball at that level where you're not doing as much as the other stuff. Definitely. So let's shift to Manhattan college, man, where, uh, where I actually got familiar with you. Uh, I used to be in the gym all the time. You never kicked me out. I appreciate that. The, the <laughs> lacrosse guy used to always kick me out, but you know, we'll leave him alone. Um, yeah, man. Can, can you speak to that experience of, of rebuilding the Manhattan college team? Um, Back-to-back NCAA tournaments, they never did that before? Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. What, what's, what's interesting about it now, looking back, you know, after what we accomplished during that seven-year run, you know, right when I was in the middle of it, obviously, it was my first head job. I was young. I was, you know, I probably made a lot of mistakes on how I handled certain things. But, you know, the, the one thing that no one could argue, you know, people could maybe look back and maybe have some differences with our methods. But what they can't argue with is statistics are a stubborn thing and, and the finished product and the, the results, you know, we put – we're very, very proud when I look back, you know, we, we, we put banners up in the roof, you know, as you mentioned, Andrew, you know, we, we won seven championships in seven years, meaning, you know, we won three regular season titles, two Mac tournament titles, uh, two holiday festival championships. Obviously that coincided with bringing in one of the best players in school history, Luis Flores, who went on to become the lead, you know, all-time leading scorer at the school. I have a lot of alumni now, Andrew, reaching out saying they want to see me get in the hall of fame at the school because they feel like we accomplished more than let's say even Fran Fischilla and Steve Lapis, who are two former great coaches that are already in the hall of fame. And, um, you know, and I'm very proud about the fact that they feel that way and they're going to try to get the alumni and people involved in that. Nice. And we'll see that if that comes to fruition, but, but looking back, Andrew, you know, it was a lot of hard work, a lot of great assistant coaches, a lot of recruiting, a lot of great players. Of course, the main thing is, you know, you don't do it without the kids. And we had a lot of guys, I mean, Jason Wingate, who we mentioned, Dave Holmes, Lewis Flores, I mean, Anderson. So, I mean, so many terrific players, thousand-point scorers, rookie of the year guys, all MAC guys. We, we brought in so many special kids during that time. Uh, Darrell Brown, who I inherited, you know, just, just incredible tradition at the school, great school, and uh, very, very proud of what we accomplished there. It was a really important part of my life when I look back. You know, very, very proud of what we accomplished. Yeah, I know a lot of those guys. I'm actually good friends with a lot of those guys. Do you feel that it was like you guys had great chemistry? Were those guys talent higher than the Mac level? Like, I think so, Andrew. Yeah. I think one of the things, yeah, I think one of the things we came in and said was, you know, we don't want to just, you know, we said, hey, we first of all, we want to win the league. Who's the best? And at the time, it was like Sienna and Iona. Right. And I said, okay, well, we got to get better players than Sienna and Iona. So I said, you know, they got Atlantic 10, Big East type guys. So I said, that's what we need to do. You know, we need to get Atlantic 10 Big East type of guys in order to beat the St. Johns of the world and, you know, the, the high major teams and make a name for ourselves and not just, you know, win the Mac, but go to the NCAA tournament, win some games in the NCAA tournament. And, you know, we did that. You know, we, we, we first, you know, we, first thing was to win, you know, uh, to have a winning season. Then it was to get to the NIT. Then it was to get to the NCAA. Then it was to win a game in the NCAA. And then it was, you know, to put guys in the NBA or overseas or, you know, and we accomplished all those things, you know, we, we built it step by step and we built the foundation and, uh, you know, and the, and the rest of the program was built on such a strong foundation 
that we accomplished great things. You know, some people said if we'd have stayed there long enough, you know, maybe sometimes the grass is always greener. I left to go to the Big East and Seton Hall, you know, bigger league, more money to compete against and coach against the Hall of Famers like Jim Calhoun and Jim Beheim and Rick Pitino. But often people said, hey, if we would have stayed there, you know, we would have became the Gonzaga of the East Coast. And when I, you know, when I think of what we did, you know, we really did some incredible things that the, the biggest number I'll throw out, Andrew, is I remember when I took the job, you know, they were, I think they were coming off five and 23 and the last coach had gotten fired. Right. They were last, last in the league, you know, only three and 15. We got picked, you know, 10th out of 10 teams in the, in the back. And, and, and we were like 300, there was something like 336 division one schools that, that first year I joined division one in 1999. And we were something like 326 or something. We were like, you know, seven to 10 spots from the bottom. You know, that, that one year when we beat Florida in the NCAA and lost to uh, Wake Forest with Chris Paul and came an eyelash of the, of the Sweet 16. And that was that two-year run you mentioned where, you know, we won the league the year before, played Syracuse with Carmelo Anthony when they went on to win the national championship. That At the end of that second year, that run, uh, we, we were like something like 15th in the country. And so when I think of going from – you know, 320 to all the way up to the top 15 in the country. It was a remarkable climb. And again, you know, you can't do that without a lot of great assistant coaches, a lot of hard work and certainly great talent. You know, I left out so many guys. I mean, Jason Benton. I mean, it's just when I think back, even early on with the guys like Justin Jackett, Muggsy Green, you know, Mike Conovelchik. I mean, it was just, you know, we really had special recruiting classes um, and that's what turned into, you know, winning. And, and then I think also, Andrew, you know, we really were in, we really did push our guys hard and we worked really, really hard. And I was demanding and, Hey, we were probably in the best shape of any team in the country. Our practices were really difficult. I remember Jim Calhoun when he won three national titles at UConn once said playing at UConn is very hard because he makes it that way. And I was kind of, you know, and I was that way at Manhattan. I mean, you know, you asked my players that, that, you know, were loyal to me or love me, you know, look, I was hard on them, but, but it was tough love. And, And you know what? We had a lot of success. And I pushed them hard, but we were really, we were really good. And so I think we had a lot of things going for us. We had really, really good talent. We had a great staff. Uh, we felt like we had great coaching and, and we worked, you know, if not the hardest, as hard as anyone in the country. So I think when you put all that together, uh, you know, we did, we accomplished some incredible yeah, things. You know, hard work pays off. Your hard work paid off. You got, to, uh, you got a head coaching job in the Big East, which was great. You know, making se- seven figure salary. Sorry that I let your, your <laughs> salary out there. But, you know, you're on the <laughs> ethics board and everything. And, you know, uh, Jay Billis always talks about how he feels uh, college players should be paid. I've actually had Doug Gottlieb on my show who, who feels the opposite. He feels college players shouldn't be paid. What are your thoughts on that? Where do you stand on that? You know, I'm kind of, Andrew, I'm a little more leaning towards uh, Jay Billis's side. I, the only thing that I do, uh, I do know it is difficult when I hear Jim Beheim and certain guys say that the one thing they worry about is how do you – you know, police it or not just police it, but the, the part that becomes complicated and difficult is the one thing that that's tough, Andrew, is, you know, everybody, you know, is not equal, Be, meaning, you know, you have the power five schools, the Kentuckys, the Duke, the Kansases, and then you have the, the low majors, the mid majors. So the tough thing is to how do you figure out across the board, you know, what is equal value for all the basketball? The other tough part is then you get into, of course, gender equity, the other sports, women, so the part that I, I find difficult is I'm not quite sure if there's a perfect answer that, you know, how do you, um, you know, uh, uh, manufacture it across the board for the whole country? That's that's the tough part. You know, is it for the select few, uh, the special guys that are lottery picks or will that get taken care of when they go back to them, you know, get rid of the one and done rule? And if 
kids can go out of pro out of high school, like guys like LeBron James yeah. and Kobe. Maybe, you know, maybe that takes care of that. And then you're not worried about these 10 or 15 special elite players being in college and that they should get paid or what if they get hurt or what about the insurance policies. So, you know, there's so many things, Andrew, that I kind of I'm, I'm in the J. Billis camp in that I kind of feel like sometimes it's unfair that, you know, the players, people are making money off their likeness or selling their jersey in the bookstore or, you know, the NCAA can't do that much for them uh, in terms of paying them or giving them money or paying for certain things that I think they should pay for. On the other hand, if you do say, okay, let's open the floodgates, let's pay the college players, even though they're amateur, besides the fact that they get a scholarship, room, board, books, and tuition, my part that I'm worried about, Andrew, is I don't really know the answer to how do you, um, you know, how do you set it up for everybody and make it so that it's, you know, it's, it's not just the, the great thing for the, for the high major elite people and then everybody else gets left behind. That, that's the tough part. Let's shift back to you with Seton Hall. Um, things were going well, and then a few kids made a few unfortunate decisions. You know, earlier in the podcast, you, you spoke to the fact that you were hard on people. Maybe you were hard on the media as well. Do you feel like that all backfired you as well when, when things like kind of hit the fan? I think so, Andrew. You know, I think in the metropolitan area, you know, Luke Karnaseka once had a great line and he said, you know, you're you're behind, you know, your butt is in your your backside is in Macy's window, meaning that, you know, if you're in the Midwest or the South, it, you know, maybe whatever happened at Seton Hall wouldn't have been such a big deal. The other part of it is, Andrew, what happens is, you know, uh, you go to the Big East, you're coaching in the hardest league in the country. We had three straight winning seasons and the league I was in, you know, now Seton Hall and it's not taking any credit away from the job they're doing there now. But, you know, we were in a, a really, really hard league. It was kind of the haves and the have-nots. And when I was in that league, there were 16 teams in the league. And I feel like we probably didn't get the credit for, for what, you know, the credit that we deserved for what we actually accomplished, you know, in that conference. Because there was like the Syracuses, the Louisvilles, the Pittsburghs, the, you know, the, the, the Yukons, the, the teams that had money in football and, you know, the Hall of Fame coaches, West Virginia, Bob Huggins, so many guys. And I think that what happened was, some of the Catholic schools were sort of down at the bottom and it was so difficult just to climb. Like when I was there, Villanova was fighting to get in the top eight. And then when we, when they changed the league into this new conference, now all of a sudden there's, you know, 10 Catholic schools and you're playing against Creighton and Xavier and it's a good league. And now Jay Wright is dominating the conference. So I think a couple things, I think we were in a very, very hard league. I think the school was going through some dysfunctional mess with the administration and not sure which direction they wanted to go in. And so I think all of that uncertainty, you know, backfired a little bit. And then I think, you know, on, on our side, what, you know, we probably did take a chance on too many risky guys that it, it blew up and backfired on us a little bit with the kids. Now, the only negative thing was uh, that I, that, that I'm a little sad about was that, you know, we kind of took the same type of guys that we took when I was at Xavier, Providence, Virginia, Manhattan. Seton. Do you feel this was like the Jerry Tarkanian kind of approach that you guys were taking with recruiting? Well, Oh, you know, what happened was, you know, we did take, you know, certain yeah. Juco guys and some transfers and some, you know, some some kind of like some borderline guys. But do that in order to compete with some of the, you know, the some of the teams that were in our league that we couldn't get some right. of the same guys that Syracuse could get. And, you know, they had, you know, Hall of Fame coaches, Louisville, they were established, Rick Pitino. They had private jets. They had big money. You know, they were getting McDonald's All-Americans. And, you know, I looked at Rutgers and St. John's and they were struggling at the time and they were, you know, both losing. And, and I said, man, you know. We could we could sort of be conservative and go step at a time and be more patient and try to build with young guys, or we could take a chance and take some transfers, some older kids, some JUCO guys, some borderline guys. 
Thanks, man. You're always welcome back on the show. You know, you're 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 really kind of a Manhattan Jasper without really, you know, even though you because you, you grew up in Riverdale. And yeah. Even if you didn't, you know, you know, play at Manhattan, you were you were kind of part of our family. <laughs> if, if Bobby Gonzalez says it, that's it. I'm a Jasper, man. <laughs> that's right. You're in with Jay Wingate, who was one of the all time winning as point guards. Right. That <laughs> all right, Bobby. Talk soon. Thanks for everything. Really appreciate it. Episode 81 is in the books. Thanks for listening. Big shouts to Bobby Gonzalez for joining in. We appreciate you. Let me know how you feel about this episode right on the comment section of your Apple Podcast app. Leave a five-star rating as well. Be on the lookout for episode 82. Combo out.